Welcome to Church History for Chumps, episode three. This episode, I will be honest, we get a little bit off the rails, and I'll tell you why. We're talking about this guy by the name of Maximilian Kolbe, and he's a priest with a very interesting, unique martyrdom story. Now, I won't spoil too much, but essentially, this is a martyrdom story that takes place in a concentration camp, which is usually not what you think about when you think of martyrdom. Yet, it's a beautiful story of self-sacrifice and reflecting the love of Jesus, and it's great. The reason we got off the rails was because we had to answer the question of, why is this man's story so familiar in Catholic circles, yet seemingly written out of history by Protestants? And the reason for that is because... This man was a Catholic priest who wrote very heavily on the Virgin Mary. And so we talked a lot about not just his story, but also the Protestant relationship with the Virgin Mary and how it's a little bit complicated. We hope that we equally irritated both sides, uh, not just Protestants, but also Catholics. And uh, that's what we always try to do. But anyways, it's a great conversation. Uh, This is Church History for Chumps, and we're really glad that you're here. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Church History for Chumps. My name is John Simon. And I'm Thomas Duell. And uh and we're here today. Uh we've got we've got a fun one today. Well, I don't I mean fun like his life ended in tragedy. Like nothing says fun like <laughs> martyrdom, <laughs> martyrdom. Yeah, yeah, Nazi martyrdom too, mm. which I mean, I don't know. Like he was starved for like 10 days, so I I don't think it'd be that enjoyable. There's probably some martyrdoms that wouldn't be as bad. No, it's actually a pretty heinous way to be martyred. Yeah. Yeah, because like you think the burnings and the you know the upside down crucifixions and stuff like those is like burnings like ten minutes probably, <laughs> crucifixions like maybe a few hours. This one, you know, you're you're sitting in it, you're swimming in it for a while. Yeah, I actually think that he was starved for fourteen days. Fourteen, yeah. All right, well let's let's preface it. So we're talking about the uh, the esteemed, the revered, uh, the patron saints of um, charity. Of charity, that's right. I was going to say chastity. I was like, that doesn't make any sense. Uh, a, a man, a man of Poland, Maximilian Kolbe. Um, I'm really excited to uh, to jump into his story, and I I think we were just joking about this. We might be the only Protestants in the world talking about this man Thomas yeah. actually I was I was just thinking through uh, some of our taglines and I think the one that fits the best today is uh, church history for chumps the FDA approved cure for cage Calvinism yeah there, there ain't no Calvinist talking about uh, Maximilian Colby oh no except Not for bu- us yeah except for us that's right uh, and we'll get into why uh, we'll kind of leave you on a cliffhanger there for right now. But Maximilian Kolbe was a uh, was a Polish priest. He was born in uh, January eighth, eighteen ninety four, by the name Raymond. So Raymond's to Maximilian is a quite an upgrade for names mm-hmm. as far as that's names go. Yeah, that's a big dub. That's like Abram to Abraham. It's like you know, shout out to the Raymonds out there, but still, like that's that's a uh, that's a step up. <laughs> um. 
and yeah, his his kind of claim to fame was uh, he uh, he was a Franciscan monk. He founded his own monastery uh, when World War II started to kick off, and there was a significant amount of persecution happening under the Nazi regime. He used that monastery to house a number of um, individuals, many of them Jews, just kind of uh, allowing them to seek refuge from the Nazis. Then some of the numbers said that like it was up to like two or three thousand people were sheltered in this area. Um, but the story that really gets people hyped about uh, Maximilian Kolbe was uh, so after he had housed people in this monastery, he was eventually arrested by the Nazis. He was taken to a concentration camp and it all kind of started on July 29th, 1941. There had been a uh, there had been an escape attempt that um, had happened the day before, and the Nazis, in response to that, had decided they wanted to take ten men um, and starve them to death as retribution for the um, the escape attempts. And so they picked nine men out of this little this little dorm unit, and uh, and they picked the tenth. He was a uh, he was another Polish man. And he immediately just broke out into tears and he starts saying like, oh, my wife, my kids. And uh, Maximilian kind of says, hey, well, um, if you if you guys don't mind, I would actually prefer it if I could take his place because he has a wife and children. And this is like pretty, pretty uh, significant because this wasn't. So they're in Auschwitz, by the way. Yes. Uh, so they're killing killing a lot of people there. Mm-hmm. Um, but this wasn't like they were gonna just line mm-hmm. them up and just shoot them, right? I mean, this wasn't like volunteering to take someone else's place and then ten minutes later, you know, it's yeah. over with. They were gonna take them to um, a starvation bunker, mm-hmm. where, to my knowledge, you kind of sit in complete isolation and i i don't know the exact details of what that would be like but i imagine you're just kind of watching all of your peers die around you until you yourself succumb to starvation so physically obviously very uh torturous but even psychologically like that sounds really really gruesome yeah i think they had them like take off all their clothes before they went in and you're sitting in like a concrete box yeah until you just die yeah and the exposure and like thinking like you don't you don't have like any place of privacy so even something like going to the bathroom is just kind of like around you like this is really really miserable and so uh to everyone's surprise the the nazi officer accepted accepted maximilian and he took he took the priest along with him uh, two weeks later, uh, the Maximilian Colby was still alive, and uh, he put a hypodermic needle in his arm and uh, filled it with carbolic acid, and uh, and he and and they killed him, and they cremated his body. And I think maybe the most beautiful part of this story to me is was actually a brief interview they did with the man whose place he had taken he was another polish man and his quote was uh he's kind of regretting like not being able to really thank him because he actually survived the concentration camps and ended up living to the age of i think 93 and uh his quote goes something like i could only thank him with my eyes i was stunned and could hardly grasp what was going on the immensity of it 
I, the condemned, am to live, and someone else willingly and voluntarily offers his life for me, a stranger. Is this some kind of dream? Um, and I just think like that's <laughs> that's such a beautiful like like what he what he received was a taste of the gospel. Like this is what we build our entire faith around is this idea that like we are freely able to offer our lives. Um, not necessarily these gestures of self-sacrifice, but sometimes it does look like that. But we are offering our lives because that is the image of what Christ has given us. Like we, the condemned, um, are allowed to live because someone else willfully took our place. Um, and this is just a beautiful, beautiful example of that. Um, yeah. Yeah. I I get the sense from like the stuff that I was reading about that moment when he said i'm gonna take this this man's place that they asked him uh who you know who are you and he just said i'm a priest Mm -hmm. and the i read one account that basically just said that the the guards were like just ashamed like which is crazy yeah you can shame a a uh an auschwitz guard Mm -hmm. i mean you're (laughs) You're like really you're you're doing something right, yeah. Because uh, I mean, they're just the, the place literally was just a death factory, and mm-hmm. to have in the midst of that something that was so like patently Christ-like, yeah, it, it just shames others um, into considering like the love of Christ. That's really cool. Yeah, I mean, there's there's hints of the Good Samaritan story in this because even thinking like. Uh, Germany prior to the Nazi takeover was a very Lutheran country because that's where that's where Luther sparked the Reformation. And so thinking like, I mean, I don't want to read into it too much, but imagine one of these guards had like um, been kind of lifted up in this Nazi mentality, but his origin was that of a Lutheran. And now a Roman Catholic mm. is like literally offering to die in place of another man in the in the face of my opposition. Like literally the worst person I could imagine, like a mortal enemy to my cultural background is offering to sacrifice himself for another. And here I am holding the gun and just feeling like, feeling like feeling like slime yeah yeah so when we look at at uh, maximilian colby we see the end result so clearly and this is what's cool with anyone who's ever been martyred for their faith that's what's so powerful about the martyr just means witness that's what's so powerful about the witness of it is because there there's no questions anymore about like who this person was if they Mm. were faking christianity to gain something and so with the with the martyrdom of Maximilian Kolbe, we see clearly at the end of the day, this is someone whose life was changed by the love of Christ and he was a true son of God. The interesting thing about him yeah. is his formation. Oh yeah. And how he got there. Yeah. And this is where, you know, for those of you guys who remember when we said there's not a whole lot of Protestants talking about this dude. Uh the reason for that is uh 
there's there's a lot of backgrounds that goes into uh, Maximilian's uh, kind of theological formation. And what was very interesting was that his life was vastly shaped by the Catholic idea of the veneration of the of the Virgin Mary. Like that was just profoundly interesting. And so, like for me, I'm kind of like, well, I think the reason Protestants don't talk about this guy is because they hear about this cool little story about self-sacrifice and then they look into it and they're like whoa this guy (laughs) this guy loved him some mary uh and so i even i wrote down a few quotes that that came straight from him i think he wrote oh man he wrote a book um and I wish I remember the title of it. It had he referred to Mary constantly as the Immaculata um, or the Immaculate One, which uh, just sounds like a dope. Like I don't know if I was a rapper, I would call myself the Immaculate, Immaculate. One, like constantly. <laughs> um, but he he said. Um, like uh, this one's a pretty familiar quote. I didn't know this one actually was Colby, but if anyone does not wish to have Mary immaculate for his mother, he will not have Christ for his brother. Hmm. Um, another one was um, the conflict with hell cannot be maintained by men, even the most clever. The Immaculata alone has from God the promise of victory over Satan. And so it really kind of brought up, I think one of the things that Tommy and I were thinking through was it brought up this idea of like protestants are not comfortable even like really referencing the relationship that catholics have with the virgin mary which i think is its own interesting thing because well i don't know what do you think about that i think maybe we should get our caveats out of the way first and talk about how we how we as protestants think differently uh, about saints in general, but way more differently about Mary. Yeah. Um, but then from there, once we've got those caveats out of the way, mm-hmm. it's my it is my belief that Protestants have a great work of recovery to do in the area of thinking well about Mary and considering her life. Um, so yeah, why don't we th- why don't we talk caveats first, and sure. then we can dive into like why we think that. Um, this concentration on Mary was actually so ended up being so formational in a good way for him. Sure. So, um, yeah, I mean, uh, uh, that's so it's interesting that our perspectives on Mary almost couldn't be more different when you think about it, because, um, I think the traditional Protestant view, especially within the reforms tradition that Tommy and I belong to is, uh, Mary was a faithful vessel of God, that she was not sinless because sinlessness couldn't be attained. Which is what, uh, immac- when they refer to Mary as the Immaculate, that is what Catholics mean. Right. That she's sinless. Yeah, that um, she did give birth to Jesus, but that she also had other um, children afterwards, which a Catholic would not believe. They would say she had Jesus and one and done, which I kind of get, like, you know. Why would you want to have more kids <laughs> after you've had Clear Jesus? While you're ahead. Yeah, dude. I mean, if your first son is LeBron James, like what? Is it, what's the next dude going to be good at chess? Who cares? <laughs> like you, you hit the goat. It would just be mean on to your those first other kids try. At that yeah, point. exactly. Yeah. So I mean, I get the strategy, Catholics. I understand the I mean, the philosophy here. Either way, I mean, I, 
And Jesus' younger siblings had to have had some syndromes, man. Yeah. It's like just sinner's guilt or just, <laughs> uh, yeah, a lot, of, a lot of comparison issues. I mean, imagine Joseph, dude. He's like, what am I, what am I going to give you that the Spirit didn't give you, Mary? One thing we forget is that Jesus' name was basically Josh. And so I can, I can imagine his younger siblings just being like, Okay, Josh. Yeah, yeah, we get it. Okay, yeah. why don't you uh, make turn turn some more water into grape juice for me? <laughs> um, yeah. So, uh, but yeah. So we there are some very very clear distinctions between how we view Mary, and we were talking about this earlier. Something that's interesting is that being reformed. A big element of that is Calvin's idea of total depravity, which essentially means that because we as natural human beings are dead in our sins and are basically unable to do acts of righteousness without the spirit of God animating our dead uh, spirits and devices, um, anything good that happens is always going to be initiated by God. And so I think the cause and effect of that for us as Reformed people tends to be when we see people throughout either history or even scripture, we tend to see God's like kind of pulling the puppet strings and saying like, oh, well, it's so great that God used this person in this way, which I think is good. But because Catholics don't have that same type of viewpoint, they would say, well, Mary's act of obedience, which was her decision, it was her volition to say either, yes, I will birth the son of God or actually psych. No, I'm a, I'm a teenage girl. I'm not going to go through with this. Like she had the fate of the world in her hands in that decision and because of her faithfulness to God made the most consequential act of obedience that any individual in human history will has ever and will ever make and like I think we you and I we were even talking like that's an incredible like that is absolutely a praiseworthy thing but because we know how far Catholics take that, I think we are often like, I don't really want to be like, right. you know, talk too highly on that. So there's two pieces uh, to this, I think. One is uh, within Catholic uh, uh, practice, uh, there's a commonplace uh, practice of praying to and and asking for intercession from uh, saints, Christians who have died um, in the past. And at the end of the day, the only reason why we differ on this is because we actually have different books in our Bible. Mm. And so uh, Catholics, the Catholic canon is has some differences to like, you know, when I pick up my NIV Bible, it's, it's different than the Bible that my Catholic friends would pick up. Mm. And in some of those books that come from the intertestamental period in between the Old Testament and the New um, that they have in their Bible, there is um, uh, examples of this occurring in Scripture of praying to the dead. And so uh, because it's in their Bible, it's totally commonplace practice for them. We were talking before about how I, I, don't, I don't even have a problem with the idea of, a, of someone who has died praying because what we, what we believe is that uh, uh, when you die that you are with Christ mm-hmm. and 
um, whatever praying looks like, whether it's talking to uh, Christ face to face or now a a even stronger ability to pray in the spirit. Like I have no problem with that, and I actually one hundred percent believe that this is this will be part of like what we're doing as we're waiting for the resurrection. Sure. The problem is, and this is where we would differ um, than our Catholic brothers and sisters, is a, is a theology that would incorporate um, at, like someone else being required to speak to God. Sure. Like, I see this as such a highlight and main feature of New Testament theology is that we now know that because of Christ's work and his role as a high priest – um, like the high priest, the sinless high priest. First um, Timothy, for example, tells us uh, there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, mm. the man Jesus Christ. Uh, so we get this sense that – I get a sense that sometimes within Catholic practice there can be a, a disconnect where um, – there's this really rich understanding of saints who have gone before us, but sometimes it diverts us from just praying to Jesus. Yeah, and I I think that Catholics have a very rich view of the of the church. Like I think that they see the church as a living organism and not as like, well, once you die, you're part of the dead church. When you're alive, you're part of the living church. Like we're we're all everlasting beings. Like so if you are just as alive but closer to Christ than when you die than when you are alive then like that's something that should be commemorated and that's a big part of like how they utilize icons is it's like it's meant to kind of support this like living cloud of witnesses but I mean I think I, I echo exactly what your concerns are which is just like at a certain point the things you utilize to get to Christ like it almost becomes it, it, it may not it may not even be like inherently problematic even though i think i would probably err on calling it problematic but at the end of the day it's just like why not yeah you've got a direct line like why are you why are you pressing o to talk to the operator first like right. just 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 hit his extension <laughs> well and the ironic thing is that in our view god becoming man and being born by a woman, a woman that we would say was sinful, just enriches this even more where it's like this is this is what the incarnation is mm-hmm. is God becoming man and and he's Emmanuel. It's God with us, us sinful people. And so if we have any hope that we could draw near to God, then for me, the knowledge that uh, Christ was born in the womb of a woman who, was sinful, albeit an absolutely incredible figure in human history, mm-hmm. Mary. Like this is the gospel right there in that in that uh, in that uh, in that conception and in that giving birth to this mm. to this uh, son is that God God is taking the necessary steps to um, be uh, super involved in this world that is affected by sin and he's right. doing something about it because i i think a question that i would almost have to ask when you 
if you were to presuppose Mary's sinlessness to say that she had to be sinless in order for her to be a proper vessel for the Son of Man to be born, I would ask, like, was she inherently sinless? Like, was this an act of her own ability to just restrain her sinful devices or had God initiated an act of sinlessness in her? Like, did God lay that foundation down first? Because I think one of the things I love, and I think what you said was spot on, one of the things I love about the Reformed view of sin and God's holiness is that everything good we see as a reflection of God. So like, Everything that results in some act of righteousness or goodness or purity or beauty always has God behind it. Like there's there's nothing else that can produce it. Like everything is the moon reflecting the light of the sun, but there's only one source of light. And I think that's super cool to think about Mm -hmm. because there is nothing competing with God for glory because only God is worthy of glory. Um, And so, yeah, I mean, I think that. This is the same. This the problem that I have with the this Marian perspective is the same problem I have with how they view the saints. Is it's if there is so much praise to be given outside of to God alone, then like you know, how do we keep that from initiating the jealousy of God? Mm. Um, yeah. So at the end of the day, <laughs> we obviously have problems with. Uh, <laughs> ah, yeah, I guess. <laughs> but but I think that we as Protestants are missing so much mm. um, in not only our our willingness to engage with the stories of saints that we don't 100 percent agree with on everything, mm-hmm. but also in uh, like I said earlier, just a weak understanding of of who Mary is. Like, we're afraid to touch that with a 10-foot pole. So, I wanted to ask you the question and get your thoughts on this. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the f- one of his phrases that he said was essentially, like, um, that we must submit ourselves to the school of Mary. Yeah. Um, what do you think it would look like for a Protestant to attend the school of Mary? Sure. What does that mean to you? Oh, man. I, uh... I think the first thing we have to do is kind of just start taking off the taking off the lens because like I think that as Protestants especially like you know a, a big part of how I view culture is like it's reactive like a lot of the culture that we the, a lot of the waters that we swim in today are heavily tainted by the people who came before us who were affected by different things and who made reactive choices against other things. And so I think that our view on Mary is so affected by that reactive spirit against Catholicism that like we can't even start connecting with like who Mary is as an individual. And I mean, like the joke that you and I have off, off, off the mics is like, like we, we, you can hold a whole conference about being a Proverbs 31 woman because she owned a business and she, you know, is worthy of, yeah. Big whoop. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Worthy of many rubies or whatever, but it's like, yeah, Mary had God in her womb. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, that's pretty cool. I guess. Sit down Proverbs 31. Yeah. yeah, Get the heck out of here. Yeah. You and your small business ownership. I mean, it's great. It's great. But have you ever, you know, had a, had a bloodline connection with the son of, 
of God. Like I don't know. I can hear I can hear the uh, I can hear the the review right now on like BuzzFeed or whatever. Like co-host of Church History podcast tells women to sit down. <laughs> <laughs> Dogs of small business owners who are also women. <laughs> Shout out to all the small business owners that are also women out there. I uh, I'll go out of my way to shop at your stores. No problem. <laughs> um, yeah, but I mean, I don't know. Like, I, I think Mary is honestly such a fascinating figure because we dig so deeply into all of these individuals in Scripture, whether it's Moses or Abraham. Everybody feels like they've like da- people talk about David like he's their uncle. Like everyone feels like this deep connection to all these biblical individuals. But Mary seems like she's so taboo. And I think like, I don't know, like. The fact that Mary was family with Jesus in a way that so, so few people were, like the fact that like she like literally shared blood and DNA and and genetics with Jesus, like that to me is so fascinating. And I think like you said, it speaks so intimately of the nature of the incarnation and that God would cuz 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 Jesus could have just appeared right he could have grown out of a out of a out of some tree bark if the holy <laughs> spirit struck it with lightning like like God didn't God God could have made like some weird like uh demigod that didn't have to be like an actual human being he just talks like tree beard all the time just like <laughs> pick up your Yeah, like Jesus could have grown out of a cornfield or something (laughs) like that. But, you know, the fact that he, I mean, like, because we think about like Jesus and the intimacy of his relationships. And obviously, like the first thing is like he never had a romantic relationship. He never had a wife who he was intimate with. But in the terms of familial intimacy, he was very intimate with Mary. And I think that. I don't know, like in the same way that all of us feel, for better or worse, deeply connected with our mothers, even in a way that surpasses our relationship with our fathers, like that is who Jesus was to Mary. Mm. And I just think like, I don't know, there's so much um, wisdom that kind of unfolds out of that. Um, I have more thoughts, but I want to let you speak for a little bit. Yeah, I think... The reason why we saw this forming Maximilian Kolbe so foundationally was um, the reality that of that that closeness between Mary and Christ. And while we would maybe say he was taking it a little too far, that deep reflection on Mary was ultimately a deep reflection on Christ for him in a way that shaped his character. I was sitting here and thinking about, um, I think that if the book of Hebrews was written one century later than it was, that Mary would be in that list in Hebrews 11, Mm. where it's like listing all these people from the biblical story who by faith, by faith did this, by faith did this. And Mary's, I think, would read something like, uh, you know, by faith, Mary, the mother of gods, you know, spurned the spurned the shame of a of a uh, uh, you know a husbandless child or something like that yeah. and 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 uh and bore the son of god and something that 
sticks out to me if thinking about Mary like what would it look like if she was in Hebrews chapter 11 there um a couple weeks ago um my boy Ryan Braven was preaching at the table and he was talking about the differences between people in that list that we see in Hebrews and we were talking about like the differences between Noah who mm-hmm. spent like a hundred years building a boat and and like survived uh, this catastrophic flood event and then uh, Rahab who like let a couple dudes stay at her house for the night <laughs> you know <laughs> and like these people are both listed in this list of people who by faith um, are like part of this great cloud of witnesses mm-hmm. witnessing witnessing to ultimately Christ and it's like man those things don't seem to be comparable at all <laughs> but his point that he made in, in his sermon which is so good is that it is not the strength of your own faith that is uh, of substance or that matters it is the object of your faith so both Rahab and Noah and we could say Mary mm-hmm. all have their faith in Christ who right. is like this massively cornerstone central figure at the center of all history that they are uh, attaching themselves to and building their lives on and what's so fascinating about Mary is the way in which that was just so intermingled with just her daily life she yeah. raised this person so yeah i think i think there's a lot of ways that we could enrich our reflection on mary and to go to the school of mary could look like what does it mean th- to go back to that quote his famous quote if you won't have mary as your mother then you can't have christ as your brother christ is our brother mm-hmm. and i think we spiritualize that sometimes we're like what what would that mean for christ to be your brother yeah so yeah, yeah, that is really good. And uh, one thing you thought I thought of when you were mentioning the Hebrews eleven thing is like, what's interesting about Rahab and Noah is not not I mean even beyond the object of their faith being Jesus, it's also the place and the narrative that they played. Like Rahab did just let a couple dudes stay in her house, but what she did by doing so was so monumentally important far Mm. far more than she realized that place because her place in the story of the unfolding like growing kingdom of god and the gospel was like so impactful even beyond what she realized and then you think of someone like mary who again like um conceded with the idea of like i will in shame carry this baby who my husband will not affiliate with um or who who may be known like was not was not birthed from my husband like that's still just like a really incredible thing and another thought that i had was i i wonder if there is an affinity for mary as the mother because maybe there's too rigid a view of seeing God only as a father figure Mm. and not as being a maternal figure as well. Um, Because, I don't know, I've kind of wrestled with this a lot because, um, you know, I'll kind of dunk on the weirdo progressives a little bit, uh, progressive Christians. Like, they they love, like, pronoun swapping and stuff like that and the, you know – you know our our mother uh the mother god stuff like i think i think all that's weird and kind of forced and like i understand the the perspective they're trying to push even though it just seems like they're just you know rewriting scripture to fit into cultural trends but like 
I do understand this idea of if we are creating a, if we are superimposing a human dynamic on God, which the scriptures do because the scriptures call God the father, like, and we recognize that the family unit is a foreshadowing and a glimpse of a greater spiritual relationship that like I can have a brother by blood and by genes, but Jesus is my brother in a deeper sense of that. Just like John one says, not being born of the blood, but born of the spirit together. Um, like God is my father and I don't want to say God is my mother because that still feels weird. But like one of the words for God in the Old Testament was El Shaddai, which means like the bosom. Like mm. it was like the it was what a Hebrew woman would use to feed her infants with. Mm. And like there there's like a, a nurturing sense to it. There's like a sustaining sense. Like there is like a maternal love within the character of God that I think. I mean, again, it's one of those things I feel like we're uncomfortable touching, and maybe yeah. that's where the Virgin Mary kind of fills in, it's fills almost, that role. It's not, it's not God personified, but it is the it is the the truly female characteristics of God that is it that is personified well in Mary, in that uh, God is is neither male nor female. Right. Um, he he reveals himself to us in uh, you know at with these male pronouns and of course Christ comes as a man but uh, the characteristics that make the women that we know uniquely women are characteristics that come from God exactly like, and yeah. and so yeah I I'm not I don't find that to be problematic to mm -hmm. to look to Mary um, not as a personification of God but as a a woman in the biblical story who is um, at the end of the day exemplifying self-giving love in probably one of the best ways that we see in the Bible mm -hmm. um, and that makes her a truly human yeah um, and it also makes her truly woman yes and I, I think all of this is why I feel so comfortable taking someone who was clearly a very devout um, uh, reverer of the Virgin Mary and someone like Maximilian Kolbe and still talking about him because I think that Catholics bring a very distinct perspective on Mary. And I'm not going to take the pluralist perspective and say, oh, well, we're all right. I don't think that's true. But I do think that like they are preserving a level of respect and reverence that I do think is extended to um, unhealthy levels, but I also think it's probably a lot more reverent than we currently are as Protestants. And I think that's what is really interesting. I'm also saying that because I want all the Catholics who are listening to know that I really love and care about them because I'm about to deeply disrespect you. <laughs> um, uh, I was reading about the relics thing, like, 
so a, it's a big deal when a saint dies that they want to have like you know a ham bone or uh maybe uh maybe a couple molars to be like yo we got the molars of saint 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 doug from uh from from uh from poland or whatever and you know the nazis uh what's the word and incinerate him they cremated him and so there was nothing left but fortunately uh, when he was still at the monastery, one of the monks was cutting his hair and was just like, I feel like you might get canonized one day, uh, Max. So he saved some hair, probably a little Ziploc bag. Then when he got canonized, he was like, well, I'm sure glad I saved this. And when I heard that story, I thought to myself, I don't buy it. <laughs> press x for doubt yeah yeah like i need some relic detectives to like do some dna testing because i was like i don't buy that for a second like look it's cool i'm glad homie was canonized if he wasn't we might not be talking about him but i ah, i don't know come on i gotta admit john your trajectory in life has me wondering if you're gonna be roman catholic by the end of your days <laughs> <laughs> so i think that you should just send me some of your fingernails right now we're gonna yo i mean yeah, i'll send you some mustache hairs okay yeah All what's right. the most respectful like what's what do you think is like the the golden goose egg of relics is it like a skull or like a jawbone. Skull's pretty cool. Yeah. These days, people worship feet, which is kind of weird. Okay. Super weird. Yeah. You know? Uh-huh. I don't like that. So I think, uh, <laughs> let's go skull. All right. All right. Cool. Um, yeah, because toenails would be kind of... Can I have your skull when you die, dude? Um, <sighs> say, say yes right now. Say yes. Here's what I'm thinking. Say yes. On a scale of say one... Yes right to Hold on. On a scale of one to ten, like, I need you to assess... How likely is it that John is going to be canonized look, within, like, a week of me dying? If, if it's seven or higher, you can have my skull. If it's six or lower, you have to bury it. But you can have my toenails seven. for free right Easy. now. So <laughs> I think it's slim, man. St. John? Dude, think There's about There's, like, no, 12 St. No, Johns. I'll give you a new name. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, this dude leveled up from freaking uh, Raymond. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Everybody loves Raymond. I just think it would my sermons would be so just ice cold. If like every time I'm riding there, I'm just look over and there's your skull staring at me like, <laughs> don't mess up. You know, yeah, like, that's a real memento mori right mm-hmm, there, man. Yep. Yeah, I'm also kind of bummed that you're not just alive when I'm dead, but healthy enough to be writing sermons. <laughs> like you're planning like at least a 15, 20 year difference here, yeah, man. Yeah. All right, that's fine. If you had to get canonized, but you had to like give yourself a good old Catholic name, what do you think your name would be? Oh. Um, I mean, Maximus is a pretty cool Latin sounding name. Yeah. It would be Maximus the, I don't know. I need like a, like an adjective there. The, uh, I mean, do you want it to be like a commonplace adjective or like a really holy one? Maximus the holy sounds dope. That is pretty cool. Yeah. And then they'd be like, oh, yeah, he lived in Oro Valley. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like if you're Maximus the Holy, bro, you have to be from like Athens or right. Antioch or something. You can't be from, you can't live off of Cortero. Which reminds me, <laughs> one of these days we're going to do a pod about Mount Athos. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, crazy. yeah. Oh, dude. Yeah, there's a lot of stories we can get into with that one. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, well I think we should wrap it up. It sounds good. Um guys thank you so much for listening um 
yeah same max uh if you're if you're catholic we we really do care um not so much for mary but for you um (laughs) (laughs) not so much not as much unsubscribed no 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 uh we really we really do care for you and we we obviously care for mary she she did a pretty good job with the whole jesus thing um, and we're really glad that you're listening. And uh, and if you're a Protestant and you're walking away feeling all smug, like you have a Catholic friend you get to make fun of, uh, stop. Yeah. Get some help. <laughs> like, take take a break. You go know, to, go to go to confession. Yeah. Or how about this? We'll we'll uh, we'll make our next podcast topic we'll, like John Knox, and we'll just rip him to we're shreds. Dunk on him, yeah. yeah, yeah. I was gonna say we'll burn him at the stake, but they already got to that, right? So, yeah. <laughs> Too soon. Yeah, I'm getting spicy. At the end. All right, we got to close this off before I have to edit some stuff out. All right, well, thank you guys. Uh, we'll catch you next time. Thanks for listening to Church History for Chumps.